0: Hello and welcome to The Crux, the weekly Women's Agenda podcast. In today's episode, we are talking sports records, science records, the New Zealand election, the voice referendum and the humanitarian disaster in Gaza. Thank you for listening. My name is Angela Priestley, joining you from Gadigal land and as usual, I'm joined by my co-founder and Women's Agenda editor, Tala Lambert. Hello. Hello. Hey Ange, have you recovered from our leadership awards? Recovered? No, it
1: was amazing.
0: I you got some energy from it, did you?
1: <laughs> well, I needed it after the last week. I think, yeah. Um, but yes, definitely, still feeling the vibe of that night very much. It was, um, it was such a beautiful celebration.
0: Yeah, it was. So we announced the winners of the Leadership Awards on Friday night in Melbourne. We had a keynote from Professor Megan Davis. She ended up not being able to get there in person, uh, but she did an excellent video address, which was great. Um, We also had Jack River performing, which was really awesome and I you know I love live music and I love Australian music and original music and Tyler I'm a little bit proud of ourselves for being able to incorporate that into what we had there and I it was the first time we've ever done that and I hope that um it was just I I just think more events like that more ceremonies more you know corporate events even conferences I think there's so many more opportunities where we can really get more artists involved and it just is really special to to do that.
1: Yeah. We also had Kirsty Wiebeck as the MC who did an outstanding job. And for anyone listening who is putting on an event, um, <laughs> I would highly recommend her. Tap into the comedians for MC. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. It was just such a, a fun event. I did probably embarrass myself with Jack River because I was fangirling her and her guitarist <laughs> so much uh, that I probably made them thoroughly uncomfortable for most of the event but it was (laughs) it was brilliant and the caliber of um, finalists and winners this year I mean always every year it is incredible the pipeline of talent that comes through that program but yeah just amazing to share so many diverse voices you know these phenomenal people that are doing so much of the heavy lifting across industries and just making pathways easier for future generations. So, yeah, amazing. And and it is, it is always my proudest moment of the year to be able to to kind of have a part in, in getting that event to life. Yeah, and so go
0: and check out the winners, but also please check out the finalists because it's such a, I mean, it's such a tough thing. I, I hate that we have to end up with finalists and winners. I wish we could just find a way to celebrate it and
1: get, you know. It's not how the world
0: works, Edge. I know, I know, but in this case, also because sometimes, you know, people obviously pursuing very different work and we try to put people into categories. And um, so we do, you know, we do our best with it, but please go and check it out. And um a big like also like just so thankful to everyone who was there in Melbourne as well because we haven't done an event of that size in Melbourne before and um, we didn't know really – You know, obviously we've attended stuff there, but we didn't know what to expect as organisers ourselves. And it just – I just thought the crowd was so great. It was just – it was a tough – time obviously being the last week the night before the referendum as well um when it was you know pretty pretty clear at that point I think what where where the result was heading and that was really difficult I think for most people in the room to think about and also what was going on with the global news situation as well but um I feel like it it somehow you know you, you come together and you bring this energy and you know Tali you and I spoke about like collaborating and connecting and how important all that is and how Brilliant women are at doing that, and I hope mm. that people will take that away from that night who are there. And you know, if you do go and check out the finalists and the winners, that you might see some opportunities to collaborate and connect and think about you know doing things with there too.
1: Yeah, and I tell you what, if we had more women leaders, we'd have less shit in the world. So I think we, um. I think we could be in quite a different situation. <laughs>
0: Let's get to that. But uh, Tyler, your win for the week, aside from the leadership awards.
1: So my other win for the week is the opening weekend of the A-League Women, which was a resounding success and I think had quite a lot of momentum off the back of the Matildas World Cup effort. So that was awesome to say. Obviously, there's been a lot of speculation about how women's sport will travel after, you know, the World Cup and whether or not it was just a moment in time. And I think examples like this really show that there is – you know, something is really building here and it isn't just a siloed incident. It wasn't just some kind of rare case that happened, some um, enigma. It was, this is really um, here to stay. So a crowd of 5,735 attended the F3 derby between Central Coast and Newcastle and a regular season record that was broken just a few hours later in Sydney when Sydney FC beat the Western Sydney Wanderers in front of a massive crowd of 11,471 people. So it was an all-time crowd record for the competition. So yeah, awesome, awesome to see. I can't wait as well for next year with um, the Matildas in the Olympics. I think it's just going to be such a a massive year for for women's sport and it's only going to get bigger from, from this point onwards. So yeah, great to see.
0: Yeah, really good to see. So my win is in science. So this week, uh, women dominated the Prime Minister's Prizes for Science, which is pretty cool and pretty amazing as well when you consider the fact that, you know, w- women are, are still uh, not represented as highly as we'd like in science and still don't get the uh, same level of research grants and face plenty of barriers in their careers in science where... Um, you know, having career breaks and working part-time can be actually really problematic and difficult in science, the way the whole system and structure is set up. So four of the seven Prime Minister's Prizes for Science went to women, including the top award, which is worth a quarter of a million dollars. And that went to quantum scientist, Professor Michelle Simmons, AO. She was the 2018 Australian of the Year and has been recognised for her contributions to quantum computing, including creating the country's first quantum computing company how
1: which- do these people uh, exist honestly <laughs> <laughs> actually that was one of the things that came out of the leadership awards when Kirsty was reading out the like profiles of the science <laughs> category <laughs> like, and she's just like- the words that were coming out of that <laughs> and kirstie's standing there going Honestly, I have looked through this script a million times. I had never seen that word before. And, yeah, look, I mean, people are just doing such incredible work, but it is mind-blowing when you read stuff like this.
0: Yeah, and they just do it, like, quietly, like, in their own, you know, they're not, uh, I mean, I'd never heard of Michelle Simmons until she was named Australian of the Year, and you just think how, like, she had just been sort of quietly toiling away on this, and she gets this, you know, massive recognition, and it does wonders Mm -hmm. for women in science, and... I I can still remember her speech from 2018 and I remember how because we did a story on it at the time and she made this comment about uh, do the hard things and it really resonated with me at the time I don't know what there was just something really powerful and strong about those words like go and do the hard things and she spoke about it in in terms of her own career and not that you know that she could have opted, opted for an easy thing or something but it was just sort of inspiring to hear that like it, you know it's okay to pursue something like super hard, even if it's not convenient at that time in your life or whatever, you know, it's okay not to, but you know, you you can actually, it's okay to give that a go. And in her case, uh, she did. I I presume I've never really ventured into the field of quantum computing, but I presume (laughs) it's one of the harder uh, things.
1: (laughs) It's probably not a
0: walk in the park. I mean, I don't think that it's the type of hard thing that would be hardwired into my brains. So maybe it's not going to happen. But anyway, congratulations to uh, Michelle Simmons and would love to get an interview. I think maybe get her on the podcast at some point. So she yeah, is amazing. Awesome.
1: So, Tyler, to our first story. Look, it's, as you said before, it was kind of written on the cards for quite a few weeks prior to the referendum and, and certainly in those Hours before it, uh, things were looking pretty dire. But now we know the result. Obviously, the result is not a favourable one, in, in my perspective. Uh, 61% of Australians did turn up and, and say no to an Indigenous voice to Parliament. And off the back of that, we've seen Indigenous leaders of the Yes campaign asking, I think quite rightly, for a week of silence to grieve the outcome of the referendum and noting that they need to regather their strength and resolve off the back of it so filmmaker and co-chair of yes 23 rachel perkins issued the statement on her instagram page on saturday and it was on behalf of indigenous australians who supported the referendum and she wrote we're calling for a week of silence from tonight to grieve this outcome and reflect on its meaning and significance we will not be commenting further at this time we will be lowering our aboriginal and torres strait islander flags to half mast for the week of silence to acknowledge this result we ask others to do the same The statement wrote of a bitter irony that those who have only been on this continent for 235 years had refused to recognize those who have been here for more than 60,000 years and called it beyond reason. And it spoke of the need to deeply consider the consequences of the outcome and the role of racism and prejudice against Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the result of the referendum. And just a a final line, she said, It was never in the gift of these newcomers to refuse recognition to the true owners of Australia. The referendum was a chance for newcomers to show a long-refused grace and gratitude and to acknowledge that the brutal dispossession of our people underwrote their every advantage in this country. So incredibly brutal reading that statement. And as I, I said before, completely understandable, but just so heartbreaking and I just, I cannot even begin to think how Indigenous people are feeling right now or the vast majority of Indigenous people are feeling right now, how rejected they feel by non-Indigenous Australians who really just refuse to take up an opportunity to walk together. This was a policy that was going to in no way adversely impact anyone and it was only going to improve the lives of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And I just don't know how we reconcile that as a country and go, that's okay. You know, that what we're seeing right now is okay. What we're seeing in terms of the disadvantages that exist, the mortality rate being eight years younger for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people at the moment and, and all of the other health disadvantages that exist, all of the other social and equity issues disadvantages that exist and and we're looking at that and going let's maintain that status quo let's not do anything about it I think it was and I think a lot of people feel this too but uh I I think it was a really shameful day in Australian history and I think it's going to take a very very long time to come anywhere close to to um reconciling what we've done. And,
0: I mean I've been obviously reflecting on this a lot. And I think now, I mean, all of us have to consider what we will personally do, you know, what our businesses can do, what employers can do. And obviously the Albanese government needs to consider this and is saying that they are considering this, what they will do to address the gaps. We did have an opportunity for something really great and the country uh, voted no. And um, I had this moment with my own kids when we were sort of watching the result and I had this like sort of urge to let them know how I voted and just to, I, I wanted them to see that because I just look at this and I think they're going to be reflecting back on this. And just asking so many questions, why? Why did this not happen? And, you know, they are unlikely also to get, any of us are unlikely to have any kind of referendum for a long time after this process too. So obviously there's a lot of analysis in terms of where things went wrong. We know that there was a lot of misinformation out there and a lot of fear that was going, especially to to some communities. But what I kind of really took away from watching some of the interviews that were happening at various areas and electorates was this... Not only a lack of understanding of what it was, but also a lack of understanding of the gaps that do mm. face Indigenous Australians and what we can do to make sure that people understand that. I felt mm. like, and maybe that's a role for media, maybe that's a role for Women's Agenda to do more, is to highlight where the figures are really stark when it comes to um, uh, when it comes to life expectancy. When it comes to um, health, there's so much around women's health Mm. where the gaps are just so much more prominent and more significant Mm. for Indigenous women than they are for non-Indigenous women. And I think if we can sort of highlight that, that would have really shown why this was so necessary so that we can Mm. have this consistent voice there to ensure the continuation of some of these programs and to um, really highlight why that is necessary to get that done. So Uh, That was my quick reflection on it. I'm, I'm still kind of mulling over it and I really completely understand the week of silence and I feel for some Indigenous politicians particularly because so much is being asked of them in these days around the explanation, what went wrong, and really sort of feeling for them and not being able to have those few days hopefully you know we yeah. that will come and that, that will go to them and look forward to really listening in terms of what um will be said in the coming weeks and months yeah. and years now
1: yeah yeah I mean we saw Linda Burney deliver that statement shortly after the result and um she had to stand there and and was crying on stage, was so visibly rattled by it. And these people, you know, and I mean, I know I mentioned this last week, but, you know, they, these are people that have dedicated their entire lives to getting this off the ground, to, to seeing mm. constitutional recognition of First Nations people there. And now where do you go from that? Because the government has said point blank they're not going to legislate anything. They're not going to try to... Well, they're clearly not going to try and run the referendum again and Dutton has already quashed that as an idea. So, you know, Aboriginal people have asked us to walk hand in hand with them and to support these efforts and they've gotten slapped in the face for it and now where do we go from it? I think we're in a really awful state at the moment and I think that it's really revealed quite a lot of ugly behaviour and feeling and ill will in this country. And and we need to to kind of look at where we go from there. On to our next story,
0: because there was another vote that was occurring in our region on Saturday, and that was the New Zealand election. So this election follows Jacinda Ardern's, uh, so she retired earlier this year. Obviously, she had a successor for the Labor Party. And Basically, this election it comes what so this is what nine or so months after her. But do I call it a retirement? I mean, what is she in her early forties, late (laughs) thirties? That's a good retirement. But yeah, she did step down, um, saying that she had nothing left in the tank and um, that she. Didn't feel that she could fully commit to, um, you know, knowing there was an election campaign and everything like that. So, and we did at the time very much commend that because there is something very commendable about a leader stepping down when they realize that they don't have they don't have what it takes anymore. Where often people prefer mm-hmm. to just push, push, push and fizzle out, often to uh, really not so great consequences on the side of that as well. But this, so it's interesting. Last election, New Zealanders were asked to vote between two major parties with leaders who were both uh, women and leaders who were both sort of clamoring over themselves to declare themselves as feminists as well. That was the time. And this election, New Zealanders were asked to choose between two of the major party leaders who were both called Chris. And so I think that is the first, you know, that's where it's at. And there isn't Um, a woman, Chris. They are just both Chris's with penises. Just to I don't know make if one. Clear. I think one might be more of a Christopher, and another one is more of a Chris. Christopher, <laughs> no, no <he's... laughs> but um, anyway, the conservative Christopher Luxon. So he is the next prime minister of New Zealand. The country voted; it did swing to the right, and it did vote the National Party in, and it was a resounding defeat of Labor. Christopher Luxon has been in politics for just one term. I find that really interesting as well. Um, he's had a business career. He was the CEO of Air New Zealand. Um, I had this moment imagining like Alan Joyce. <laughs> coming, like just suddenly. I don't think anytime soon. I don't, I think, Poor Alan. I don't know if he's, yeah. Anyways, <laughs> just, so oh that'd be quite the turnaround. Um, <laughs> and, so, <laughs> anyway, so there's, uh, so Christopher Luxon, so he has got some quite conservative views. He's also personally anti-abortion, but has said that during his term the party like there will be no push to try and repeal New Zealand's abortion laws and then people then said well if that's you know your value and who you are like isn't that hypocritical or, or whatever but he is quite religious but he's also been at pains to stake that you know that religion doesn't get in the way and various other things so
1: anyway well that's good at least he like at least he's noting that because a lot of Australian politicians don't know that line <laughs> Like, they don't know yeah, that we're actually a secular
0: country. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. So yeah. at least he 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 is. So we shall see. But I also note in his victory speech, he made the comment to voters that you have reached for hope and you have voted for change, which um, the hope thing was very much just Jacinda Ardern's area. So I don't yeah. like <laughs> it. Anyway, and it's, but you know, the cost of living crisis, there's various factors that have led to this happening and it does happen and that's why we wanted to highlight it because it really does show where Um, how quickly things change you know we've always thought of people look to New Zealand as being this uh, you know just so progressive having Jacinda Ardern there she was such a clear leader on the world stage Um, I know her popularity was starting to wane in New Zealand there were reasons for that Um, but also that Ardern's party like they just had really great diversity in cabinet Um, they, they they just did so much there and there was a lot of even the previous campaign there was so much talk around domestic and family violence and looking at other initiatives to support more more women and girls in New Zealand and that kind of got lost this campaign and that's been stated a few times that we just wasn't much of that on the agenda at all so it really you know things can shift so quickly and um, that's not on chris's priority list is it (laughs) well no it wasn't on the campaign list so i'm assuming it's not on his list but for whatever reason it wasn't much on labor's list either at that point maybe i I don't know like Mm. That they they clearly weren't seeing that as a vote winner. I I know that there was there was talk around paid parental leave during this campaign. That seemed to be the was it certainly wasn't a big thing, but one of the key things that I guess you'd say in in that kind of space. But yeah, it was it was you know sort what of think, quiet. I think around... really bothers me
1: is that like every time you think that the world is moving towards more progress, and perhaps you know young people are rising up through the ranks and they have a you know more idealistic attitude about how the world should be. It's it's like we go backwards in all areas. You know, it's as you say we might have a perception about New Zealand being progressive, but they are as susceptible to absolutely changing gears in a hot flash like mm. this and when Scott Morrison lost the last election, I remember saying really decisively there's not a chance in hell that the LNP will come back from this for at least a decade. Like they will have to do some serious soul-searching and rebuilding. And I think off the back of the voice referendum and what we saw there, I don't feel as certain of that at all <laughs> anymore. Like I mm. I feel that Australia could do the exact same thing. We could flip to the other side as quickly as we have flipped into yeah. a more progressive I mean, I mean you see it there,
0: like um, they – New Zealand often works in coalitions, but they, you know, Labour vote, they received 50% of the vote last election and they received 25% of the vote this election. Like that, that's massive. I mean, yeah. they, they lost so many seats and it, I mean, you could say that also about the, um, the, the coalition for our election and mm-hmm. we're living in a different time now where we're in this social media time. We're living with so many siloed views and extreme views often and completely incorrect views and people's own take on facts and information and what is true and I think like those extreme like those extremities are coming in and we will see these massive swings and we are so
1: vulnerable humans are so vulnerable to fear and division we just are and it's like we are never going to be able to overcome that i just Mm. it's our greatest weakness and i think we see that more and more and as you say it's only going to get worse because as things like technology evolve and we see ai proliferate certain Mm. spaces Mm. this ability to to you know spout misinformation and disinformation is only going to get worse um Mm. So yeah, I mean that's not a great takeaway, is it? I'm sorry. <laughs> uh,
0: I don't know. We'll see. You know, we'll see where he goes from here. But uh, yeah, mm. I want to see. I don't think I've seen his cabinet yet. So curious to see that. Um, and I don't think I haven't seen the, the figures on what the makeup of the parliament is looking like in terms of um, gender and in terms of diversity. But it certainly isn't going to be anything like under Ardern's term. So
1: I think the upside yeah. is that generally Kiwis are much nicer people than most people. So even a bad Kiwi is probably better than a bad Australian. <laughs> and that he's is good. my positive <laughs> takeaway.
0: Well, I mean, and Christopher Luxon, I don't know a huge amount about him. So I also don't want to sort of be out there stating that he's a bad or a good person or I, I just don't know. And apparently not many people actually know that much about him. He's very private. He's very careful with his words and very, um, he, he doesn't let, You know, much in in terms of his views outside of you know what should be the party line I guess so
1: let's let's watch that unfold diplomatic of you Angela after that (laughs) I know I was very diplomatic (laughs) not like me
0: if anyone (laughs) watches the series billions I have to say if anyone watched and you won't get this if you don't watch the series billions but my first thought was Mike Prince and you understand that if you watch that series and on to the final series anyway Tala should we get to a final thought
1: Final thoughts this week, and I think we obviously need to talk about what is happening in the Middle East and the escalating Israel-Hamas war with its subsequent humanitarian crisis. The situation is unfolding constantly, um, especially with the bombing of the hospital in northern Gaza, which killed hundreds of Palestinians, and, you know, fingers are being pointed all over the place for that at the moment. Um, and I know... You have some thoughts on our own political leaders on this situation, and we've talked a bit about this this morning, but what what are your final thoughts for the week? Okay, so final thoughts on this, and
0: I guess, I mean, I'm watching Australia's leaders on this because I know that everyone is being very cautious and careful and I mean, my sense yesterday when there wasn't really anything from the Prime Minister on that that hospital bombing was that there's this, you know, really need to await further information and being cautious about the idea of addressing what had happened and mm-hmm. obviously not wanting to minimise their condemnation of Hamas, which is obviously they, they, they don't want to minimise that and understandably... I guess my thoughts on this is that I'm, I'm, I'm stuck to it. I'm, I'm constantly watching it, and I'm constantly lost through various uh, people through I, I follow, particularly a lot of people in, in in Gaza and journalists in Gaza. And I, I feel this sense of like this struggle because I think a lot of people are finding it difficult to call this out or something. I, I'm not sure. And I think where I sit with it is that the idea of that, you know, calling out the horrific humanitarian crisis that is unfolding minute by minute in Gaza doesn't mean you don't also, you know, categorically reject the horrific terror unleashed on Israeli civilians by Hamas, you know, women and children and the elderly among them. What happened on October 7, it was just so disgusting and horrific and, you know, we're talking the sexual violence against children, the what happened to to children there, and it's and the fact that you know there are still you know what two hundred hostages or so mm. still being held, and obviously that need to keep pushing for their safe and immediate return. And I, but then I keep looking to the Gaza Strip and the blockade and just the 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 fact that we there's no you know looking at what different groups are saying about this, uh, different groups that represent women and girls, and different groups that represent humanitarian aid as well that should be going into the region can't get in there because of the blockade and obviously with the water cut out, the uh, food cut and the electricity cut and just increasingly desperate by the day and just so horrible to sit and I just sit here thinking minute by minute, mm. how, how does this end and how wh- what are our leaders going to say and how do we just stop the the killing and... The, the deaths and what's happening to civilians. And, you know, yesterday after we heard about the bombing in um, northern Gaza, that hospital, and the, the immediate sort of reaction was who who fired this rocket? Was it the IDF? Was it Hamas? Was it another terrorist group in Gaza that, that launched this intentionally? Um, was it an accident? That sort of thing. And I just kept thinking like, the, the survivors and rescuers are no less deserving of having our attention and the access to food and water and supplies mm. and electricity uh, depending on who sent the bomb there. Like I, I just feel like we're kind of looking for a reason or something almost to make ourselves feel better about it happening, you know, and it's like their lives mean nothing nothing less, you know, if this is declared a war crime yeah. or not or dependent on who issued that order it, it doesn't make any difference There's still uh, these these people are still suffering and the, the children yeah. who were killed in this wouldn't even know like it's yeah
1: you know and it, I think people it, are so yeah. quick to jump on slogans and you know yeah one like captions that they're seeing on social media and, yeah, and people like nickel. analyzing
0: videos like oh i can see the way that the the dirt yeah. moves and you don't you don't know like sorry what kind of a, like maybe there's experts out there who can tell us i i, I don't know maybe who knows what's true and what's not in that sense but yeah. at the same time it doesn't take away from the fact that hundreds of people ki- were killed at a hospital which should be mm-hmm. the safest place and where so many of them were sheltering mm-hmm. and um you know i think I'm I'm looking to Australian politics I, I just don't feel that we're hearing enough of it and we've heard a couple of um you know a couple of teals uh look to to note something early on in the week around the deaths of Palestinians and that quote and got rejected and they sort of got this front page treatment across news corp for you know allegedly sympathizing with yeah. Hamas which wasn't actually the case they you know they did they did sign on to that motion condemning the violence of course they did and of course we all do but um
1: yeah
0: it's I'm just looking for those voices. And we are starting to see a few voices. I noted in the Senate yesterday, you know, the Greens are really uh, uh, pushing this, obviously. And from uh, Labor, and I just hope she's getting support and uh, protection at the moment because I can't imagine what she's facing, but Labor Senator Fatima Payman, she called it out yesterday highlighting how the world condemns Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and she asked about, uh, you know, as the state of Israel deprives the entire population, men, women and children of the basic necessities of life, we must condemn it. Mm. Um, so she's the first to kind of break ranks there and she's a backbencher. She is in her first term of parliament. She's one mm. of the youngest members of parliament. She's also an Afghan-born Muslim in parliament. It's difficult. It's incredibly brave of her. Bra- it's yeah. very brave of her. It's ex- extremely courageous and I hope she's getting the support mm. that she will absolutely need. So, yeah, yeah
1: just... I think we just need to really try not to cave into this tribalism that we know that we're prone to. And I, uh, Jamila Jamil actually spoke about this on Instagram today and I think Olivia Clear, one of our journalists, will be writing on it today as well. But I think it's just something that we we need to be conscious of and we are in the way that we are looking at this and commenting on it and pitting ourselves against each other you know we're denying people their humanity and and we're you know denying ourselves that humanity too so yes Australian politicians all eyes on you and all eyes on every other leader in this country and I think we can do and be a whole lot better absolutely
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Women's Agenda podcast, a reminder that you can catch up on all the stories that we've discussed uh, through our newsletter, which will arrive at around lunchtime each day. You can go to our website where you can find that, womensagenda.com.au forward slash subscribe. Thank you.